podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to The Racket Report, the podcast that makes an effort to take you inside the world of organized crime from every perspective, from the perspective of victims of organized crime, from the perspective of participants in organized crime, from the perspective of attorneys and journalists. Well, our guest today has been one of the most thorough chroniclers of organized crime for many years, and perhaps that's because because he's had the opportunity to have some observations of it up close and personal. Jeffrey Sussman is a public relations specialist and the best-selling author of 16 nonfiction books. One of the most recent is the paperback edition of Big Apple Gangsters, The Rise and Decline of the Mob in New York. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining me on The Racket Report. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me as a guest. So, uh, Jeffrey, you've written about the mob in Las Vegas, the mob in New York, the mob and its intersection with the world of professional boxing. One looks at your background working in your father's uh, garment manufacturing facility at nine years old and coming from a relatively humble uh, start. And one wonders why the mob? Why spend so much time chronicling and writing about the mob? What sparked your interest in organized crime initially? Uh, initially, uh, I w- was introduced to an uncle of my father when I was uh, 13, um, a man named Irving K. Uh, K was a, a short version of his last name, um, who uh, I didn't know anything about him when my father introduced me to him. Uh, But I subsequently learned about him uh, because my father told me that Irving was uh, arrested and indicted but never tried for the murder of Dutch Schultz in 1935. And that Irving had been a bootlegger who met his wife uh, smuggling uh, liquor out of Canada into the United States during Prohibition. And um, he was constantly at war with... uh, with Dutch Schultz, so he was a likely suspect uh, for the shooting of him, though he wasn't involved in it. The, the, the next thing that, that engaged my attention is, my, as you said earlier, my, my father owned a garment factory, and I used to work for my father on uh, Saturday mornings. And uh, one of my jobs was bringing up bolts of cloth from the basement storage to the cutter's table where the cloth was laid out to cut patterns for women's dresses. And one day I was carrying a bolt of cloth up from the basement, and I heard my father and another man uh, yelling at each other. And uh, they sounded as if they were on the verge of coming to blows. And I saw that my father's fists were clenched. My father had been an amateur boxer, and it looked like he was about to punch this man. And my father said to the guy, get the F out of here. And the guy pointed his finger at my father like a pistol and said, we're going to get you, you son of a bitch. And and the guy left. And when we were driving home that afternoon, I asked my father who that was and what was that about. And he said that was a man named Johnny Dio, who ran illegal unions and had a trucking company for the garment district. And he was trying to unionize my father's workers. And uh, the workers figured that they would get less pay if they joined that union. And my father was paying them, so they voted against the union. And uh, Johnny Dio was very angry about that. And, and he said that uh, my father better get these guys to, to vote for the union. And he also uh, was trying to force my father to hire his trucking company. Now, my father had a cousin through, through uh, my mother who um, he, he and his brother during the Depression had operated an Italian grocery store in Corona, Queens. And they would take turns going to law school at night to, to St. John's University. And... Uh, they became uh, uh, involved primarily because of the neighborhood they were involved in and the people they were dealing with. They got to know a lot of people in the mob. And uh, one of the brothers, uh, his first name was Joe. I don't want to mention his last name because I don't want to embarrass his family. Um, 
uh, wound up um, doing business w- w- with the mob. And in, in the late 1950s, he was arrested for torching a warehouse in the Bronx. And my father paid his bail for him. And my father, uh, a year or two later, when this incident with Johnny Dio happened, my father went to him and asked him if he was in a position where he could uh, get some people to negotiate on his behalf with Johnny Dio. And and he did. And um, my father wound up having to take the trucking company, but uh, he didn't have to uh, unionize his workers. So that, that that was the second thing that, that engaged my uh, in, interest in the mob, and and then the uh, the third thing was I had a friend uh, for a number of years, and I didn't know this about him at the time. He was a, a doctor; he's now dead. Whose uh, father was in 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 the mafia, and can and controlled all the gambling uh, in New York for uh, Frank Costello, and Frank Costello was my uh, friend's godfather. And, and I heard a lot of stories from him about um, the mob and, and 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 things that he learned from it uh, uh, growing up. He he chose not to go into the mob. It was not something he wanted to do, though, though his father opened the door for him if, if that's what he wanted to do. And it, it, it was interesting because uh, th- this man was a clinical psychologist, and he wound up uh, treating the the sons of a lot of mobsters who were conflicted about whether to uh, follow in their father's uh, footsteps <laughs> and, and join the mob or, 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 or follow on a more legitimate uh, course in their lives. And, 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 and I, I got a lot of insight from him in, in, into the mob, which, uh, which fascinated me. And you know, based on that, I, I, I started doing research and speaking to a lot of people whom I knew. And I, um, I wrote uh, uh, Big Apple Gangsters. And uh, I have a, uh, a, f- a friend uh, named uh, uh, Tony Solano, who is a retired New York City detective who was in an organized crime strike force. And, and he gave me a lot of information and, and introduced me to a lot of people uh, where, I, where I got additional information from. So, so that's what led to uh, the, the writing of Big Apple Gangsters. That uh, incident when I think you said you were 13, you were at a bar mitzvah and you got $100 from Uncle Irving, who you alluded to was that rival of uh, of Dutch Schultz. He, did he just give you $100 just out of the blue like that? And, and what does that do to you and your mentality as a young man when a stranger hands you more money than you'd ever been handed before? I, 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 I was amazed. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and, and I didn't know why he was giving me the $100. And, uh, and and that's why I started questioning my father about it. And, 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 and uh, the more I learned about the guy, uh, the more fascinated I, I became. And, uh, and then I learned also that for, uh, he had had a, uh, a warehouse on 125th Street uh, up, up in Harlem, which he used for his uh, uh, trucks to deliver uh, booze during uh, Prohibition. And uh, he had... Uh, two adopted sons, and then he had one son by his second wife, my, my father's aunt, and, and he was a little mentally slow. And, and I met this guy. He was a very nice guy. And because he didn't have a profession, Irving gave him that warehouse, uh, and it was turned into a, uh, an auto garage uh, after, after, after Prohibition. So he very nicely gave his, his son, who was incapable of, of really going out on his own, of, of, a, of a garage to run so he would have income for the rest of his life. There have been so many books written about the mob, and there's been so many books written about the New York mafia specifically, figures going back to Lucky Luciano, uh, all the way to uh, people like John Gotti, and even folks in the 21st century. What makes your book, Big Apple Gangsters, different? How is it a different look or a different exploration of mob life in New York? Well, I, I started with with, um, with with one man, Arnold Rothstein, who was really the founder of organized crime in the United States. And he was the man who allegedly fixed the 1919 World Series. And he uh, met uh, Meyer Lansky at a bar mitzvah in, 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 in Brooklyn. And he was very taken by Meyer Lansky's intelligence. And Meyer Lansky was friends with uh, Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, and Bugsy Siegel, all of them, uh, in in their late teens. And Arnold Rothstein 
took them on as protégés and told them how to organize crime. He told them how to dress, how to act, how to socialize with with, uh, people from a higher level of society, because they were basically uneducated kids who came from very, very poor backgrounds. And when Arnold Rothstein was assassinated at a card game in 1928 at the Park Sheridan Hotel, these four guys took over organized crime. And one of the things that, that... a lot of people don't realize, especially people who see a lot of mob movies, is that while there were five mafia families in New York that were organized by Lucky Luciano, there was something called the National Crime Syndicate, which was bigger than the, the five mafia families in, in, in New York. And that was started by, by Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, and it was called the National Crime Syndicate. And they had a commission on which the heads of the five mafia families sat, but also members from gangs all across the country, about 28 different uh, cities from around the nation. Now, what was also very interesting is that about 50 percent of the members of the National Crime Syndicate were Jewish and 50 percent were probably Italian. And there was a tremendous intermarriage and interrelationship and partnerships with the Jews and the Italians all the way up through the 1970s. And it, 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 it kind of dissolved after that. But if, if you look at, at the movies, you know, like The Godfather or, um, or Casino or Goodfellas, you, you just th- think that organized crime w- was solely attacked. Right. And, and it wasn't. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. So uh, I obviously the mafia and membership in the mafia necessitates being of Italian descent why did that if if Arnold Rothstein was so integral to starting uh, all of American organized crime as we know it today why did the mafia branch out and sort of become more ethnocentric when clearly as you point out with the national crime syndicate there was a lot of success to be had with italian criminals working with jewish criminals why did the mafia become sort of an italians only club well, it, it was interesting because the, the two original uh, mafia bosses in New York, uh, Joe DeBoss Masseria and uh, uh, Marizano, Salvatore Marizano, they, they were very kind of uh, narrow-minded, and, and they only wanted to deal with Sicilians. And Luciano and Lansky and these others, want, they were primarily concerned with, with uh Money, ethnicity didn't matter to them, and 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 Maranzano and Masseria didn't want Luciano dealing with anyone who wasn't Sicilian. They didn't even want him dealing with someone who came from mid, the middle of, of of Italy. Never mind Jews. I mean that that was you know way out of line for, for these two guys. And Luciano uh, realized that that if they were going to expand and operate like a, a big successful business, they had to get rid of these two guys and they had to open it up to the people who they were dealing with who could help them succeed. And 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 so they arranged for Masseria and Maranzano to be assassinated. And there, there was something amusing almost in the way that they had Maranzano killed. Maranzano in particular did not like Jews at all. So lucky Luciano arranged for five Jewish gangsters to be the assassins of, of, of uh, Maranzano. It, it was almost like he was teaching Maranzano a lesson. And um, one, one of the gangsters was named uh, Red Levine, who was actually an Orthodox Jew. Mm. And, um, and, and, and someone asked him um, if, if, if he wore a yarmulke when he went in to, to, to kill Maranzano. And he said, no, no, I, I took it off and I put it in my pocket. And after he was dead, I put it back on my head. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the name Lucky Luciano and the role he played in the establishment of the five New York mafia families. Give folks a little background on Lucky Luciano. What, who was he and what was his role in the formation of modern American mafia life? Um, his real name was uh, Salvatore Lucania, and uh, he, he had a teenage gang on, on the Lower East Side, which is how he and uh, Meyer Lansky met. Um, Meyer Lansky was coming home from school one day, and uh, Luciano's gang cornered him in an alley and demanded money from him. And, and, and Meyer Lansky uh, uh, 
cursed at them and 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 said he wouldn't give them a dime. And Luci and 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 Meyer Lansky was younger and he, he was a little tiny guy, and and Luciano was so impressed w- w- with how ballsy um, uh, Lansky was th- that they became good friends. And and over the years they could finish each other's sentences. They were like brothers to one another. And when uh, uh, Luciano said to Lansky, you know, that, about how he wanted to organize crime. Uh, he, he said to Lansky, you know, you're smarter with numbers than I am. You're a great mathematician, and and maybe you should be head of this. And and Lansky said to him, I don't mind being head of it, but you, you know, we have all the you know the, the mafia guys who are going to come into this, and I don't think they want to be ruled by a Jew. So so I think it would be better if you became head of this. And 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 Luciano agreed, but together they were the co-heads. Of, of of the National Crime Syndicate, and you know, I, I think it was a, a, a Time magazine in the 1970s said that if uh, if Luciano had gone legitimate, he was so smart that he would have wound up being uh, the CEO of, of a major Fortune 500 company. The motive of Luciani, Luciano, is it solely greed-based? Was it all about making money? So often mob lore, it creates sort of a noble narrative about some of the people that are involved in this life. Was Luciano just about uh, the Benjamins or was there more to it? I, 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 I think it was primarily money. It, it, it was for all of them. They came from it, it, extremely poor families. You know, Lansky was offered a job in a tool and dye factory for a dollar a week. And, and, and he and, and Siegel were, were making uh, something like $75 a day from extortion and protection. So they figured, you know, why should I work for a dollar a day when I can make money doing this, even though it's illegal? And, 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 and Luciano felt the same way. Give us the thumbnail sketch of, of Frank Costello. Why was he such a prominent member of the 20th century mafia world? Well, uh, Frank Costello, his real name was uh, Francisco Castiglia. And he, he got the name Frank Costello because he was dealing with a lot of uh, Irish uh, gangsters on the west side of Manhattan during Prohibition. And he felt that he would be more accepted by them if he took an Irish name rather than using his original uh, Italian name. He, he uh, was arrested when he was a young man for carrying a gun. And after that, he decided he would never carry a gun again, that he would always use his brains instead of a gun to get what he achieved. And, and he also realized that as long as he could help to raise money for politicians, that he could get them to do his bidding. And he became a real powerhouse in political circles. He was even at the 1932 uh, presidential collect, uh, convention that uh, nominated Franklin Roosevelt as president. He was one of the delegates there. He, he was a man who really used his brains uh, to, to advance himself. And he felt that you know violence was necessary when it was necessary, but it, but if if you could use your brains instead, you would get much farther, and the results would be much greater. Appalachian meeting in 1957. This is something that has been depicted from time to time in cinema, and it's often pointed to as a moment in American history when people around the country became more widely aware of the existence of La Cosa Nostra, even outside of New York. What was the purpose of this meeting and what happened there? Well, it, it, it was interesting because from people that uh, I had uh, interviewed, uh, organized crime strike, strike force detectives and, 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 and others over the years, uh, and, and and even some uh, older retired mob guys, it, it it turns out that the Appalachian Conference was actually set up by um, Costello, Lansky, uh, Gambino, and and Luciano, who who was in in Italy at the time, as a way of getting rid of uh, Vito Genovese, and and they were the ones who notified the police about this conference, because they wanted to uh, embarrass Vito Genovese and get him out of the power position that he was in. And they felt that if they could embarrass him in front of all the other mafia bosses, that, that, that he, his, his career in the mob would be short-lived. And he had wanted the con- Genovese wanted the conference 
because he wanted to establish himself as the boss of bosses. And, and he thought that that's where he could do it. And he had, you know, tried to push away um, Frank Costello, who had taken over as head of the, the Luciano crime family. And, and ultimately, you know, he had, he tried to have uh, Costello assassinated uh, by having a, uh, Vincent the Chinchiganti shoot him. So, so it turned out to be a huge embarrassment to uh, 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 Genovese, and it was the beginning of his downfall. Moving ahead to the 80s of, of New York mafia life, one of the most fascinating incidents in New York mob life, and I believe you get into it in pretty great length in your book, Big Apple Gangsters, is the story of the mafia cops, uh, Eppolito, Louis Eppolito and Stephen Caracappa, who essentially, while they were working as NYPD detectives, they were moonlighting as hitmen for the mob. Two interesting guys. I uh, covered their, their trial, uh, and it was an interesting trial about 16, 17 years ago, and people still remain pretty fascinated about this case. How did the mafia cops come to be? Were these guys always dirty and they sort of snuck their way onto the NYPD, or were they recruited while they were on the force and sort of become, became more, more ill-intentioned? Um, well, Louis Eppolito came from a mob family, and uh, Frank Caracapa had an arrest. Uh, Steve, Stephen, oh, I'm sorry. Stephen Caracapa ha had an arrest record uh, uh, prior to joining the uh, the police uh, for burglarizing a warehouse, I believe it was. But uh, they were brought in into uh, the, the mob by a guy named Bert Kaplan, who um, it became an intermediary uh, for the mob and these two guys. Now, my my friend. Um, Tony Solano, the, the retired New York City organized crime strike force detective, he had actually worked in the same precinct with, with Caracapa, and, and he he said he was he was very businesslike. Uh, he he was not a social guy. He was always very nicely dressed. He he always seemed very efficient, always doing his job and so forth. And what was interesting, he told me, was that after Tony retired, he opened a private detective agency, and Caracapa had moved to Las Vegas. And out of the blue one day, he got a call from Caracapa saying to him, you know, if you ever need any information on anybody, you, you can't run down their information. You need the information. I can get it for you. Just give me a call and I'll be very happy uh, to help you out. And he said, thank you. He never bothered calling him again. And, and, and this was, you know, obviously before these two guys were, were indicted uh, for the murders that they committed. But um they were on the payroll. They were getting three thousand dollars a month from the mob, and and then getting paid for individual hits. And I asked Tony how he thought these two guys got onto the police force at the time, and he said it was during the Vietnam War, and the police force. Uh, was down in, in, in membership. They, they were eager to recruit as many new people as they could. There were a lot of demonstrations going on in the city against the war and, 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 and other things. And the, the police department in New York was looking for more and more recruits. And, and, and they overlooked uh, a lot of things that would have been red flags mm. at other times. Cer certainly, uh, Louis Eppolito's uh, connections uh, uh, to the mob and Caracapa's uh, arrest record w would have um, pre uh, prevented them from joining the police. But but the police were so eager to get more recruits that they overlooked that and, 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 wow. and they hired these two guys. Do we have an idea of how many murders they actually committed while they were working as police officers? I'm, I'm, I'm taking a guess. Uh, I, I think it was seven, but I'm not sure. Wow. I mean, that's uh, that's a wild situation. You mentioned the role that uh, Burt Kaplan played in their recruitment. Who was Burt Kaplan? Uh, Burt Kaplan was a um, was basically a drug dealer and, 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 and a guy who got involved in a lot of other uh, scams, uh, especially scams to uh, uh, sell uh, stolen bonds, government securities and things like that. And uh, when he, um, uh, one of his partners, uh, 
uh, stiffed him and wouldn't pay him the money that he wanted. And so uh, uh, a, a Kaplan asked uh, Eppolito and Caracapa uh, to kill the guy, and, 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 and they did. One of the things that how would you describe the mafia in New York today in 2023? Uh, you've covered a lot of a lot of ground. And you mentioned Frank Costello, who was a leader in the mafia in New York, but was also almost a national political figure as well. I, I don't know that anybody in the New York mob today can lay claim to that sort of a, a dual life. What is the mafia like in New York today? Well, you know, I, 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 I have friends who are th- three criminal defense attorneys who have dealt uh, extensively with the mob. And I, I asked, him a, 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 asked them a similar question. And basically they said, you know, you know, the mob is still thriving. It's doing well. But because of the RICO statute, which can put a guy away for 100 years, they're, they're, they're trying to keep a very, very low profile and operate in the shadows. And that uh, these lawyers have are, are regularly being consulted uh, by uh, mobsters about how to avoid putting themselves in a position where they could be targeted un- under the RICO statute. But uh, they don't want to be known. They're not interested in celebrityhood. They're not interested in people knowing about them. They just want to be able to go about their business and, and have no one notice them anymore. And so the the fact that we don't hear a lot about things like mob killings in New York or mob activity, that's a reflection of the mob's desire to play more of a low key impact. Or is it a reflection of those laws that you alluded to, the RICO statute and so forth, being effective enough to either lock people up or dissuade folks from joining mob life in the first place? I I think it's a combination of the two, actually. Interesting. All right. Let's talk about the mob in Las Vegas. You have a terrific book about that that has gotten a lot of a lot of attention. What role did the mafia play in the formation of modern Las Vegas? Um, Actually, um, initially, it it, it was a a fairly limited role played by by the mafia. Uh, the, The mafia didn't really get involved in a big way. In, in Las Vegas until the 1970s, um, th- there were a couple of um, what they called uh, sawdust saloons in, in, in Las Vegas. Uh, gambling had been made legal in Nevada in 1931. And, and right after World War II, gangsters started uh, coming out to Las Vegas because they, they knew it was a good place to, to operate a gambling casino. But most of them uh, were independent gangsters. They weren't connected to, to any kind of mob family. And, and in fact, there was a guy named... Uh, Billy Wilkerson, who owned the Hollywood Reporter and a couple of fancy restaurants in Beverly Hills, who actually started building uh, the Flamingo Hotel. And he ran out of money, and banks wouldn't lend money to casino owners because they thought it was a a bad risk. So he went to the mob, and he borrowed uh, a couple of million dollars from uh, the East Coast mobsters, uh, Frank Costello, uh, Bugsy Siegel, and, and, and Meyer Lansky. And as he was uh, continuing to build, uh, Bugsy Siegel uh, said, you know, we're going to take over now. Uh, Thank you very much, but you're out. And uh, Wilkerson didn't want to get out, and they threatened to kill him if he he didn't sell his shares back to them. And he was frightened enough, so he went to Europe uh, and lived in France for a year or two. And and then Siegel uh, borrowed additional funds. Uh, totaling $6 million from his East Coast pals uh, to complete the uh, uh, Flamingo. But uh, he and his girlfriend, Virginia Hill, was skimming so much money that uh, there were tremendous cost overruns on on the Flamingo. And uh, he he refused to pay back the money. And uh, Lansky and Luciano came to the agreement that he had to be killed and he was killed. So Luciano, that that's what's depicted in the film Bugsy. Right. They show that, uh, that uh, Luciano and Meyer Lansky went along with the Bugsy Siegel murder. I've heard alternative views of that situation, that maybe this was a, a situation with uh, a, a love triangle involving Virginia Hill or maybe something else happened. You go along with that conventional wisdom that the the mob did kill Bugsy Siegel. Well, well years ago, I, I, I interviewed a man named Ralph Natale, who was uh, head of the Philadelphia mob. 
And he said it was well known amongst the mobsters that uh, Frankie Carbo, who had been uh, Bugsy Siegel's partner in Murder Incorporated and eventually became uh, the boxing czar of, of, of the United States, that he was the one who pulled the trigger and, and, and killed uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel. And he was chosen to do it because it was the last person that Bugsy Siegel would have suspected who would come after him and kill him because they had committed so many murders together. Uh, when they were working together in Murder Incorporated. What about the Teamsters and specifically the Teamsters Pension Fund? What role did that play in helping the mafia and Las Vegas as it was sort of becoming the the Disneyland that it is today? Well, um, it it started with a a man named Mo Dalitz, who is, is probably the least known big gangster in the United States, but it was the most powerful gangster in Nevada. Mo Dalitz uh, grew up in, in, in Cleveland, and his family owned a laundry business. And he had become friends with uh, Jimmy Hoffa when they, when they were both young. And when uh, a union tried to unionize uh, Dalitz's uh, family's laundry plants, um, Hoffa came in and was able to keep it union-free. And these two men developed uh, an ongoing relationship. And a- after Prohibition, um, Dale had opened a couple of gambling casinos in Indiana and Kentucky. And then after World War II, he uh, went to Hoffa, and and Hoffa agreed that the uh, Central States Pension Fund could help finance uh, the building of uh, the Desert Inn Hotel and Casino, which uh, uh, Dale and three partners from Cleveland uh, operated. And Hoffa got a, a percentage of the uh, of all the money that was uh, loaned um, to the building of casinos, and 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 he probably arranged for the building of at least uh, ten major Las Vegas casinos. And uh, Mo Dalitz was a part owner of of many of those casinos, and and late in life he wanted to legitimize himself, and he became a major philanthropist. He built hospitals. He built synagogues, he built churches, he built uh, shopping malls, he, he, he built the biggest hospital in, in, in Las Vegas. He, he became known as Mr. Las Vegas. He was invited to the presidential inaugurations of Nixon and Reagan. And, and he was a man who was, you know, in, in the 1930s, 40s and 50s, considered one of the biggest gangsters in the West. And, 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 and he became completely legitimate by the time uh, he was an old man. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. One of the films depicting mafia life in Las Vegas that uh, I've heard person after person say that they that they love this film. Some have said it's one of the more realistic depictions of mafia life is the film Casino. And in that film, the Joe Pesci character, Nicky Santoro, is based on the real life mafia figure in Tony the Ant Spilatro. You get into uh, Tony the Ant Spilatro a little bit in in your book. Who was Tony Spilatro? And uh, what did he do out there in in the Vegas mob? Uh, Just before I answer that, I just wanted to let you know that Nick Pileggi, who wrote Casino and Goodfellas, he gave me an endorsement for my books in City Gangsters. I know that. Yeah, that's that's terrific. It's all here, and he learned a lot from it, which which made me feel wonderful. I was walking on air after I got that endorsement. Sure, I can imagine. What an endorsement. Uh, Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Tony Spilatro was a... Uh, a, a sadist and, 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 and a psychopath, and uh, ultimately the, um, uh, the the mobsters in uh, Chicago who controlled him, uh, 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 Tony Ricardo and Sam Giancana, they became completely disgusted with him because 
he was so wild and crazy in Las Vegas that he brought down so much heat on them that uh, he ruined Las Vegas for them. And, 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 and that's why they had him killed and, and killed in the most brutal way. Uh, you know, they didn't just sneak up behind him and shoot him in the back of the head. They, they beat him to death. And, and while he was still alive, he and his brother were buried. Um, it, it, it was a, a really vicious uh, a, a killing. And, 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 um, a, uh, a, a friend of mine named Gary Jenkins, who uh, w- was a, uh, an intelligence officer, helped to um, uh, wire uh, uh, Nick Savella and, 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 and some of the other Kansas City mobsters that helped to bring down uh, the mob in Las Vegas. And, and you can hear them talking about uh, how crazy uh, uh, Tony Spilatro was and, and, and how dangerous uh, he, he was to them and how he was going to ruin everything for them. But one of the things that they didn't show in Casino, which is interesting that I uncovered, was that both Lefty Rosenthal and his wife were FBI informants. And, and uh, Frank Ballastari, who was the mob boss of uh, Milwaukee, suspected uh, Rosenthal of this. And that's why they put the bomb in his car trying to kill him. Wow, interesting. Uh, that is uh, that certainly adds another dimension to what we know about uh, about that story. Let me ask you the same question about Las Vegas that I did about New York. What is the role of the mafia in Las Vegas today? It, 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 they don't own any uh, casinos anymore, but they do own uh, service related uh, businesses that that deal w- w- with the mob and 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 have union influence uh, on. Um, People who work in the casinos, uh, you, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but um, Bugsy Siegel's daughter, uh, Melissa, owned one of the biggest lighting companies in Las Vegas that made all those, you know, big, brilliant neon lights that you see all over Las Vegas. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. But it, so as far as a presence goes in Las Vegas these days, it sounds like the mob is sort of a non-entity. It is. I, I mean, they, they don't control the casinos. The casinos are all owned, you know, by large corporations like Hilton and 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 and, and others. And there were big entrepreneurs who came in and and took them over, and 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 they're the ones who you know run it. But you know, the mob always wanted to benefit from it, and you know, they can also keep a low profile by you know, dealing with companies that that service the casinos. You get into two of the most famous entertainers of all time a bit, uh, Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley. We've heard a lot about Frank Sinatra and his affiliations and associations with different organized crime characters. We've heard um, a little bit about Elvis Presley. What do we know for sure about those two entertainers and their dealings with the mob? Well, Frank Sinatra was definitely mob connected. Um, there's an FBI tape of um, uh, a man named I think it was Marston, who, who was a member of the Gambino crime family. And when they owned the Westchester Premier Theater and they were losing money, Marston called Sinatra, who was performing at a nightclub in uh, Chicago, and he said, "We need you to come out to the Westchester Premier Theater tomorrow." And uh, and perform for us. We need to we need to build up the audience. And Sinatra said, I can't I have a two week engagement here in Chicago. I can't leave. And Marston said, you better be there tomorrow. And that's it. And he hung up on him. And Frank Sinatra went the next day. And how about Elvis? I, I, don't, I don't think Elvis. Elvis had a, a, a manager who, who was not the most honest man in the world. Uh, uh, Colonel Parker, who did not do a good job for Elvis, and and Elvis could have made a lot more money in Vegas than he was making, but but Parker was just a terrible manager. But but there was an interesting story that a man named uh, Tony Napoli, who's now deceased, uh, told me about Sinatra. Tony Napoli was the son of a man named uh, Jimmy Napoli, who was one of the biggest bookmakers on the East Coast, known also as Jimmy Knapp. And his father uh, got uh, Tony Napoli a job as a floor manager at the Sands Hotel. And it was right after... Um, Howard Hughes had bought the Sands, and he gave instructions that you could no longer uh, get credit if you owned the if you owed the hotel a lot of money. And Frank Sinatra was gambling there one night, 
playing blackjack, and he was down $50,000, and he owed the hotel $50,000, and he wanted to borrow another $50,000. And he went to um, Tony Napoli, and he said he wanted credit on Marker for another 50000 Tony told him, we can't give it to you. I'm sorry. So Frank went a little berserk, and he started yelling and screaming at people and throwing things around. And he um, he, he went into the telephone uh, booth, uh, a telephone room where the operators were, and demanded that they call the overall manager of, of the uh, hotel. And they they said, "We can't. He's he's sleeping." And and Sinatra started ripping the phones out of the wall and yelling and screaming at them. They had to hire a security, have a security guard come in and escort Sinatra out of there. Finally, the manager of the hotel uh, comes down at about uh, six o'clock in the morning, and he, he's willing to meet with Sinatra in the garden lounge of the uh, uh, casino. And they're sitting opposite each other in, in a booth, and Sinatra's yelling and screaming at this guy. And the guy says, you know, I don't have to take this. I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of here. And, and, and Sinatra says, what are you frightened of? Um, and the guy says, I'm not frightened of anything. And Sinatra says, well, sit down for a minute. I have one more thing I want to say to you. And the guy says, yeah, what do you want to say? And he says, I, I think you're nothing but a dirty a Jewish kike. And, and, wow. and, the guy, and the guy picked up Sinatra by his shirt collars and punched him in the face and knocked out his four front teeth. And Sinatra said to his friend and bodyguard, Julie Rizzo, he said, get him, get him. Julie said, I'm not getting involved in this. Wow, my goodness. And uh, the, the manager was a big guy who was known as a very, very tough guy who had buried some people in the desert. And uh, Tony said that, that he then had to drive Sinatra to an oral surgeon to get Sinatra's uh, lips sewn up. And then came back to the uh, hotel, and Sinatra was still really furious and he drove his golf cart through the front window of 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 the sands and then he flew back to uh to Beverly Hills and he called uh, Tony Knapp's father and he said he, he needed to do something about um, uh the manager he wanted to hurt him in some way and Tony Napoli's father said you can't touch him he's one of us Frank you understand what i mean he's one of us he signs your checks, and they're big checks. You know, they're hundreds of thousands of dollars. But he said, "Look, Frank, you're just an entertainer. You're not one of us." And 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 he's a protected guy. You can't touch him. And and and, and that was the end of it. So, but the next day, um, a lot of people in 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 the sands had been terribly treated by by Sinatra. The, the week before, a waiter had served Sinatra a hamburger that Sinatra didn't like the way it was cooked, and he threw it against the wall. And he demanded that the waiter be fired and that the chef who cooked the hamburger be fired. So, which was typical of the way Sinatra handled a, a, a lot of uh, workers at, at the Sands. So after they heard that this guy punched Sinatra and knocked out his four front teeth, they put up a poster of uh, Frank Sinatra around Las Vegas, a big photograph of Sinatra with his four front teeth blacked out. And then it, 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 they put the name of the manager on the poster. His name was Carl. I can't think of his last name offhand. Uh, and, and said, vote for Carl for mayor. And, 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 <laughs> and that poster went up all over Las Vegas until it was finally taken down. Uh, we're almost out of time, but there's a couple of quick areas that I want to get into with you before we before we run out of time. And I could talk about this stuff with you all day. It's uh, fascinating. And I hope people check out your books. They could search Jeffrey Sussman on Amazon or wherever books are available. I alluded to your work covering the field of boxing. You've written about a lot of the great boxers of all time. Tell me about the mafia's involvement, if any, in the world of boxing. Well, the mafia was always involved in boxing, and, and that too also started with Arnold Rothstein, who uh, fixed a lot of boxing matches. Um, but uh, initially, the uh, the, the biggest uh, gangster involved in fixing boxing matches in New York was a man named Oni Madden, also known as Oni the Killer Madden, who um, had he owned the, a prize fighter named Primo Carnera, who was one of the biggest boxers. Ever, but he was basically a circus strongman, and all of his fights leading up to the uh, world championship were, were were fixed. And 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 he was deluded. He he thought that he was really a uh, a, a a great boxer, until he had uh, a championship bout with Max Bear, and 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 Max Bear knocked him down 
10 or 11 times, broke his ribs and his forearm and his jaw. And and then the mob abandoned uh, Primo Carnera after that. And, and Max Baer, who's actually a nice guy, uh, it was not authentically pictured in the movie um, Cinderella, Cinderella Man. Man. Uh, they, they made him look, you know, boorish and, 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 and nasty and so on. And mean, he, right. And mean. He, he paid for all of Primo Carnera's medical expenses and arranged for Primo Carnera to become a, a wrestler uh, after that so he could regain all the money that the mob stole from him. Wow. He, had, he didn't have a penny left uh, after the mob finished with him. M- M- Max Spear was really a very kind, wonderful, generous man who was... I, I, I spoke to his son who was very upset about the way he was, his father was pictured in that movie. And, 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 and then the man who took over uh, in, in the uh, late 1940s and early 1950s was Frankie Carbo, the guy who uh, Ralph Natale said assassinated Bugsy Siegel. He controlled every middleweight and, and every uh, welterweight and, and many of the lightweight boxers throughout the United States until he was uh, indicted and tried by Robert Kennedy when Robert Kennedy was, uh, was attorney general. And, 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 and he was even controlling uh, Sonny Liston from, from prison. And uh, he, he eventually died in prison. He was given a 23-year sentence. That, 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 Sonny Liston, that Sonny Liston fight with Muhammad Ali, where uh, Ali beats Sonny Liston, and Sonny Liston basically just sits there and refuses to come out uh, back and continue the fight with Ali. A lot of people believe that Sonny Liston threw that fight because he was uh, paid to do so or was paying off a gambling debt of some sort. What does your research suggest about that? That um, Sonny Liston was entirely mob-owned. Uh, I mean, there were there were about ten mobsters, and they, they all owned a, a significant piece of him, leaving very little for Sonny to own of himself. Um, the, the the fight that took place in Lewiston, Maine, uh, where where Sonny was knocked out supposedly in the in the first round, there was a gambler in um, Las Vegas named Ash Resnick who owned a piece of uh, Sonny Liston. And a guy who worked for Ash Resnick said he was getting on a plane to, to go to, up to Lewiston to watch the fight. And, and Resnick said to him, don't bother, it's going to be over in the first round. <laughs> and, and, and the FBI has a tape of Sonny's wife, Geraldine, saying to him, just stay down in the first round. Why continue fighting after that? You're going to lose anyway. You'll get hurt. You'll get the money, whether you go down in the first round or the fifth round. So go down in the first round. And he said, "You're right, honey. I should, that's what I'll, I'll, that's what I'm going to do." You have spent a great deal of time in the Hamptons, and I know some talks that you've done on your books have been very well received out there. I, my wife and I are making our annual trip, well, almost annual trip to uh, to the Hamptons. I'm more of a, a Jersey Shore guy, so I don't know necessarily that much about the Hamptons and its history. What? relationship, if any, did prominent mafia figures have with the Hamptons? Um, not with the Hamptons so much as with uh, Montauk. Oh, actually, yeah, a couple of them uh, uh, had homes in um, Hampton Bays, but, but a lot of them had uh, homes in, in Montauk. And um, they, they had ownership positions in, in the, at the time, not any longer, in, in a number of very popular resorts out in, in Montauk. And in terms of um, the mob in general, one one of the things that, I don't know, I I find so frustrating in the part of the federal government is it seems like in the zeal of the Department of Justice and the FBI to go after mob figures, especially prominent mob figures uh, like people with the last name Gotti, they seem very willing, the DOJ, to skirt constitutional issues, to violate civil rights, and even utilize top echelon informants, people like Greg Scarpa, who are allowed to go out and continue to commit crimes if they're good enough to violent crimes, if they're good enough to inform on some of their mafia cohorts, where do you come down on the issue of the FBI and the Department of Justice and their violation of certain civil liberties in going after mob figures? It's terrible. You know, I I was friends. uh, He he, he died last year. It was a man named Jay Goldberg, who was uh, Greg Scarpa's lawyer and and also a friend of uh, uh, Greg Scarpa. And 
he he said, you know, that that Greg Scarpa had carte blanche to commit any crimes other than murder as long as he kept informing uh, uh, the, the FBI of, uh, of of what the mob was doing. But he and did commit murder, though, he right? Did. He committed a lot. Of, I mean, I mean he, they think that Greg Scarpa may have committed up to 70 or 80 murders. I mean, he was known as the Grim Reaper for, for all the murders he committed. And it, it, it was interesting because Jay Goldberg and his wife often had dinner with, with Greg Scarpa and his girlfriend. And, and he said, you know, he, he was an extremely intelligent man. He was very, very well read. He could talk about um, politics. He could talk about finances. He could talk about international relations with tremendous authority and knowledge. Hmm. And and. And and he was always very, very well-dressed, and he wore a very expensive toupee. And he said, yet when he went back to Brooklyn, and he would go out on, on a killing spree, he was always very careful not to wear that very expensive toupee. He didn't want to get it ruined. <laughs> One of the complaints that I hear in doing this podcast and talking about the mob, even if it's done from more of a journalistic perspective as you do, is that the people who do this, the people that spend time chronicling mafia life or commenting on it or covering it, that they're actually guilty of glorifying the mafia and uh, that uh, you're part of a whitewashing or a glamorization of mob life. I'm sure you've heard that criticism from time to time. How do you respond to that? Um, I have heard it from time to time. And all, all I can say is that, you know, th- th- these are fascinating individuals. And, and, you know, you could have said the same thing about people who wrote about Jesse James and Billy the Kid and, and, uh, and uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Th- th- they become images in, a, in our society and, and people are interested in them. It doesn't mean we approve of what they're doing, but they're nevertheless fascinating characters and the public is interested in them, you know, just like all the movies that are made about a gangsters, people flock to them because they're fascinated by it. It doesn't mean that the movies are glorifying them. And on that note, I'll end with this. Since you mentioned cinema, in your view, what is the most realistic depiction of mafia life in the movies? Well, I, I, I think the two Nick Pelleggi movies, uh, Casino and and um, Goodfellas, are uh, uh, pretty realistic. I mean, there were a couple of things that that, that they get wrong or that they uh, uh, dramatize. You, you know, as in Casino, they didn't mention that, that uh, Lefty Rosenthal was an FBI informant. But but by and large, they, they got most of it right, I thought. All right. Jeffrey Sussman, I appreciate the informative conversation. want to encourage everyone to uh, check out your books if they're interested in this subject, all available on Amazon. Thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Thank you for the interview. Thank you. If you want to uh, comment on this, you could shoot me an email. My email is frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, at redappleaudionetworks.com. If someone sent you this podcast, please be good enough to do the same and pass it on to someone else. Share it on social media and subscribe. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio. Bye.